You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the AGO. My name is Elizabeth Smith, and I'm the Executive Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Gallery. And it's my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you here tonight. We are thrilled to host the creative minds behind the production and opera Einstein on the Beach. The contributions that Philip Glass, Robert Wilson, and Lucinda Childs have made in their respective disciplines are legendary, and we're so honored to welcome them here tonight to the AGO. We're also delighted to continue the AGO's partnership with Luminato, which is now in its sixth year and is one of North America's preeminent arts festivals, transforming Toronto with over 150 music, theater, dance, and visual arts events and celebrations. Tonight's discussion of Einstein on the Beach will be moderated by Luminato's new artistic director, Jorn Weisbrot. Jorn has a history of collaborating on ambitious projects with arts organizations around the globe, and prior to joining Luminato, he was executive director of RW Work Limited, managing the work of visual artist, theater, and opera director Robert Wilson. I'm truly looking forward to future collaborations with Jorn and the Luminato team. So our time is short this evening, and I'm going to welcome Jorn, who will introduce the panel. And I will, I'd like to invite all of them to come up now to the stage. Thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, welcome to Luminato 06. Um, this is uh, the pre-pre-evening, but it's sort of the start, and it's wonderful to see such a huge crowd here. And welcome to... Philip Glass, Lucinda Childs, and Bob Wilson. I'll quickly um, introduce them a little bit um, because even I, um, knowing them for such a long time, actually discovered many new things. Uh, one of them is not when you were born and that you were born in Baltimore, Philip, um, in 1937. But his father owned a record store and Philip's record collection actually uh, consisted mainly of his unsold records, uh, which... Uh, <laughs> He then sort of inherited from his father, like Schoenberg, Hindemith, uh, Shostakovich, but also Beethoven and Schubert, who apparently is your favorite composer. He is called a minimalist, but uh, he distances himself from this label. He studied uh, Juilliard, where his main instrument became the keyboard after studying flute in Baltimore. He studied in Paris with uh, Nadia Boulanger. Um, and his main influence in terms of composers till today are Mozart and Bach, contradict if you know, my research wasn't good enough. Um, he met Ravi Shankar in the 60s, which was another major influence on his compo uh, compositional language. Um, his music in 12 parts, completed in 1974, is probably his first masterwork. He said about it, I had broken the rules of modernism and thought it was about time to break my own rules. From 1973 to 1978, he had a moving company and also worked as a plumber and cab driver because um, music didn't really um, pay for the bills, I guess. Wilson and Glass wrote Einstein on the Beach in 1976 as a commission by the French cultural minister and later brought it to the Metropolitan Opera in New York, a commission by the Netherlands Opera for Sacha Graha in 1976, and a Guggenheim Fellowship finally ended his um, thriving moving company business. 
um, as he was able to make enough money with uh, music. Um, he also wrote a lot of film music, maybe his most famous film score for one of the films that we're actually also showing at the uh, Tiff Bell Lightbox is, and I'm still having problem... Yes, could you say that again? Koyanis Gatsi. There you go, okay. Um, in the late 80s, he wrote more and more commis commissions for classical orchestra, predominantly from uh, Europe. And so he experienced a very similar shift to uh, Robert Wilson. And Lucinda also just told me that um, her French is so good because she's working in Europe at the moment a lot. So also she works um, a lot um, over there. Uh, Wilson Glass would uh, collaborate on a few other projects, including The Civil Wars, uh, The White Raven, and Monsters of Grace. Uh, we all know, of course, um, Philip from his scores for Martin Scorsese's film Kundun and Stephen Daldry's The Hours, and he was nomina nominated for an Academy Award for both and won a Golden Globe for The Truman Show. Um, Philip has also been commissioned, or Philip is not a newcomer to Toronto. He just told me that um, he's been here for the first time, in, uh, for first time 30 years ago, and there was one Chinese restaurant on Young Street. Um, he got very confused when he drove down Spadina today. Um, <laughs> in the first uh, festival, he had uh, written a piece that was commissioned by Luminato and also produced by a pomegranate arts that produces Einstein on the Beach called The Book of Longings, based on poems by Leonard Cohen. And on top of the restaging of Einstein on the Beach, we are also going to pre uh, premiere the um, overture for 2012 that Philip wrote in commemora commemoration of the um, bicentennial of the 1812 war. And um, I'll spare you with the story of how he actually remembered that he had to write this piece a couple of months ago when he heard Marin Alsop, the conductor, talk about it on the radio. Um, he's influenced a whole generation of musicians ranging from David Bowie to Brian Eno. He's collaborated with Paul Simon, Mick Jagger, and is friends with probably more amazing people than the best groupie in the world could handle. He received three Oscar nominations, and um, he describes himself as a Jewish, Taoist, Hindu, Taltic, Buddhist. Is that really true? Okay. You are described as such. Um, and I've heard him try to have phone conversations with a fax machine when he accidentally dialed the fax line of a friend. So he's always new for, uh, he's always game for new um, uh, communication. Lucinda Childs was also born in New York. Oh, she, like, no, she was, she's the only one here that's born in New York. Um, she started dancing at the age of six. She studied with um, Merce Cunningham, among others, and met Yvonne Rayner, um, who encouraged her to become part of the Judson Dance Theater, uh, one of the legendary cells of um, postmodern dance. Her choreographies are at the same time very simple and very complex, forming larger and more complex patterns out of very simple movement modules. She opened her own dance company called Lucinda Child's Dance Company in 1973 and was one of the two leads along with Cheryl Sutton in the creation of Einstein on the Beach for which she also contributed some text. And for the 1984 revival, she uh, choreographed uh, the two large dance scenes and has been working on them ever since. And she's also been heavily involved in this 2012 staging. Another really wonderful piece of hers and a collaboration that actually spun out of Einstein on the Beach between Philip and Lucinda is currently, it has been touring, I think, for two and a half years, um, called Dance, um, which um, also involves Sol Witt as the uh, um, um, set 
designer, even though it's not really a set. She choreographs and directs operas as well and worked with the Paris Opera Ballet, the Berlin Opera Ballet, and many other companies around the world. And she just came back from Europe where she had an opening in Strasbourg. Robert Wilson uh, was born on October 4th in Waco, Texas. He had no artistic education as a child. There was no museum in, in Waco. He abandoned studying law at the University of Texas and moved to New York where he worked with catatonic and brain-damaged people and studied architecture at Pratt, started performing himself and working with non-professionals on performance and theatrical forms. He claims if he had studied theater, he would actually not be doing it today. Um, so far, for that much for good education. He moved to a loft space in what is today Soho, where he developed all of his early work until Einstein on the Beach. He became very famous in Europe after the Festival in Nancy invited him uh, with his production of Deaf Man Glance that then later went to Paris for a six-month sold-out run in front of 2,000 people each. Some of them were Charlie Chaplin, Louis Aragon, Man Ray. Louis Aragon actually wrote an open letter in Le Figaro about Wilson to his dead friend André Breton saying, what we from whom surrealism was born dreamed would come after us and go beyond us. So he describes Wilson sort of as the um, final realization of surrealism. Deaf Man Glance was created in collaboration with Raymond Andrews, a deaf mute Afro-American boy that Wilson adopted. He regards Raymond as his second most important artistic influence after the work of uh, George Balanchine. Uh, his third uh, most important influence artistically is, uh, was an autistic boy, uh, or is an autistic boy by the name of Christopher Knowles, who also wrote most of the libretto of Einstein on the Beach, and Philip once told me that um, he and um, uh, he is actually his favorite librettist. After the success of Einstein at the Metropolitan Opera, um, he was financially bankrupt and gave up his uh, space in Soho and moved to Europe and uh, started working in Germany and France with the professional theater companies. Um, he has collaborated with Tom Waits, David Byrne, Jesse Norman, Lou Reed, Rufus Wainwright, recently Anthony Hegarty and Marina Abramovich. He's exhibited in galleries around the world, received numerous awards, had never hit on Broadway, which I don't really understand, but there's still room, um, and I think he's getting better and better. And he founded an interdisciplinary arts center um, for, um, on Long Island called the Watermill Center. So how did you all meet, Lucinda? Did you know Bob and Philip before Einstein, or...? Actually, um, a friend of mine told me about Philip and said, you must go come and hear his concerts in lower Manhattan in downtown when he was playing with, with the ensemble. And another friend said, have you seen uh, A Letter to Queen Victoria, one of uh, Bob's earlier productions from 1974? And I hadn't. And he said, well, you really must go. And shortly That was on Broadway? It was on Broadway at the end. Because that was a six-day run, apparently. And by the it end of each, performance. 26 performances? How many visitors? <laughs> A anyway. lot of walkouts. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. And Bob and I met shortly after, and he asked me if I wanted to be involved with, with Einstein on the beach. Wonderful. And Philip, how did you, how did you and Bob well, I connect? Met, uh, uh, I, I, uh, we had a mutual friend, uh, uh, we had mutual friends who, who told me about the performances he was doing at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Sue Wall was the one who brought me there. You remember Sue, Bob. Uh, she was at, uh, I knew her from the Walker Art Center 
And what was was that the uh, Stalin? Was that Stalin? It was a the twelve hour work. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was a, the, the life and times of life and times of Joseph Stalin. However, if, if you from got seven in the evening to seven in the morning, and Phil stayed all the way through to yeah. seven a.m. And I never saw Stalin. <laughs> but anyway, we met the uh, afterwards. Uh, a number of people from the audience came to the, to your loft on Spring Street, and we had kind of a, a breakfast there. And Bob and I agreed to meet, and we we began to meet uh, regularly uh, for lunch. The idea we'd meet once a week when we were both in New York, which was not every week. And uh, uh, we got to uh, I met Christopher Knowles. He brought him to lunch one day, and. Uh, at some point along the way, we, we began talking about doing a piece which, we, which became eventually Einstein on the Beach. And at one point, Bob said to me, do you know the choreographer Listen to Charles? And as a matter of fact, I did know her work. I had seen, was it at the uh, Washington Square Methodist Church or was it at Judson Church? Washington Square Washington, Methodist Church. It was there. Yeah. Uh, the, I went to see a performance of hers which was done in silence, which I thought was very daring, though it put me out of a job. Uh, but, and I didn't. And when he said, uh, Bob said, "Would you like? What do you think of her?" I said, "I think the work is beautiful, but you know, she doesn't use music." <laughs> so, but we—I uh, was enthusiastic, really and truly. And uh, we, uh, and she was invited to be uh, one, of, and has become uh, the the choreographic work has become an essential part of the work. Yeah, no, I agree. Bob, how did you? experience Lucinda and Phil for the first time? Well, I had heard uh, Phil's music and uh, liked it very much and was intrigued by it. And I had heard a lot about Lucinda, uh, although I'd never seen her perform. And I met her quite by chance in New Haven uh, after a performance I did with Christopher Knowles. And uh, we started talking and I asked her that evening, I said, I'm going to make a work called Einstein on the Beach, and would you like to be in it? And she said yes, and we spoke the next morning, and that was the beginning. Um. And you had planned, I think, already for a long time. I've, I've read in the archives of, the, uh, of your foundation, the, all three of them, which is actually kind of interesting, I think, formed their own ensemble. So you all basically didn't work with an existing company, but needed maybe some new style of performers and uh, Phillips was the Philip Glass Ensemble and Lucinda had the Lucinda Childs Dance Company which still exists today um, which is amazing and Robert Wilson had the Bird Hoffman School of Birds and in those archives I read um, I think in the 70s and you had at one point also a place in British Columbia uh, where you wanted to develop all your new work but that you had planned to sort of the 10 year plan was to write a large opera. Is this the opera that you had in mind? Maybe. Oh. <laughs> I don't even remember that. But, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I've made many different works in the theater. I've made works that are 30 seconds long. Uh, I've made uh, works that are an hour and a half long. Uh, Lucinda and I uh, performed in a piece that... Uh, was about an hour and a half, the patio play. And I made plays that were seven days long and uh, 12 hours. And so I, 
I've always been in, interested in um, long duration uh, of time and theater. And uh, I never really knew <clears throat> what to call the works. And uh, when I first went to France with a seven-hour play that was silent, the deaf man glance, the French called it an opera. They called it a silent opera. And uh, after thinking about it, I thought that was a good way to, to describe it. It was structured silences. And if we go back to the original meaning of the word opera, it means opus or work. And uh, so I think in th about opera, for me, that it's, it, the wonderful thing about it is that it includes all the arts. It can be architecture, painting, dance, music, poetry. Uh, all of the arts are, are in the theater and can come under this idea of opera and not... <clears throat> In the old, in the Latin sense of the word, opus work. Um, so I think I was thinking about opera in that sense. Philip, can you talk a little bit about sort of the compositional process of Einstein and working with the director? Uh, we we had a we uh, hit upon a, a, a way that was so well suited to us, and uh, we didn't. Ex we did four. We threw four of the pieces after that over the years, seven or eight years apart. We didn't rush back to working, and we liked a little period of time away from each other. But uh, we always were able to uh, find a way to work together. The first thing, of course, was uh, time. That's the thing we shared. The very first thing we did was to say, okay, uh, how many acts, how long are the acts? And Bob uh, said, well, it's maybe four acts, and, and there would be three images, and I suggested the order of the images, and then he said maybe the pieces, and if each act was an hour long, this is how it got to be. And then he had the idea of these knee plays. The knee play is like, a, like your knee connects the leg. And we, he had one an idea of these little plays that happened in between the acts, one, and also one at the beginning and one at the end. Well, when you had it all up, it came up to about four and a half hours. Uh, but uh, we hadn't actually written a note or made a drawing. That was just, we were talking about time. Then, then, the, then the interesting thing, we began talking about the piece. And if you've uh, had any conversations with Bob, which I know you have, you'll notice how he will, uh, at some point, kind of absentmindedly pick up a piece of paper and start drawing. Right? He always does that because drawing is a way of thinking. And uh, uh, these drawings uh, that he made during these conversations became a book of drawings. Then I would take the book home. And it was very simple. I would take... A, a, an image, like a trial, an image of a trial. I would put it on the piano where the music would be, and it would play the music that went with the picture. It was really like that. It was kind of like that. And then, uh, so the, the images, the time came, we did the time together. Then we did the images, then the music came, and then the staging came after that. Then and when did the libretto come in? The libretto came in this way. We would be working on a scene like a trial. And Bob would say to me, you know, I think the judge should make a speech. And he said, Mr. Johnson, he was one of the judges, he said, Mr. Johnson, could you write a speech? So that was already in the rehearsal process. We were in the rehearsal. Yeah. Mr. Johnson said, so you'd written all the music. Well, yes. And Mr. Johnson said, yes, I can write the speech. And he came back the next day with a beautiful speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, let me tell you something about the speech. The first speech was that one. We ended up in Paris some months later. And we're sitting there in the piece, and we come to that same place in the opera, and Mr. Johnson has a new speech in French. 
that none of us knew that he could speak at all. <laughs> so he was a very interesting guy. Then with Lucinda, uh, I think, Bob, did you ask her if she would write this? Oh, yes. I remember very clearly. He said, you know, we've never said anything about the beach. <laughs> and that was in the title. <laughs> so Bob said to Lucinda, could you write something about the beach? And so she wrote the piece about the prematurely air-conditioned supermarket. How well, did the, how, Lucinda, I have to tell how you something. You... I found out something very recently, which you don't know. I'm tell you now. Uh, I was talking to someone. Uh, you, you know, Paul. Uh, uh, his name was uh, John Walters. He's a yes. filmmaker. And he told me that Einstein used to walk around the supermarkets in in, uh, in Princeton, pushing the the uh, cars because it relaxed him. And somehow or other, Lucinda, years and years later, wrote a piece about the, the supermarket. Did you, and Lucinda, Einstein, did you know about that? No. <laughs> Bob, did you know that? No. No. <laughs> so somehow the, the, there was a supermarket. These kinds of things happen all. So that was the two important speeches. And then the most important writer, if I, I may say that, was Christopher. Mm-hmm. And Christopher, you know, he had a wonderful imagination. He listened to the radio a lot, and uh, a lot of the things he heard on the radio ended up in the text. And if you were, in 1976, listening to the text carefully, uh, anybody who listened to the radio would, uh, would know where those pieces came from. Years later, we hear the same text, and they're still as effective as they was, even though the audiences are much younger. For example, one of the texts after... The, uh, the second uh, trial. Uh, he simply lists the, uh, the DJ uh, and the hours and the radio station of, of a whole day's program. That's part of the text. And if you heard that, and then he even recited some of the lyrics that were sung in the songs. So that what, what Chrysler was able to do was to bring in a kind of everyday, the texts were about the everyday life that we lived in in New York at that time. And because of that, they seem so natural to us. And uh, they became the text of Einstein. Yeah. Then we had, of course, the supermarket, which the Syndicate channeled. And uh, Mr. Johnson, who, who got, knows where he got those ideas from. Bob, can you talk maybe a little bit about the story, the, the, the structure of, of Einstein and um, sort of the different scenes and, and, and how the piece, what the architecture of the piece is? Well, the way Phil described very clearly how we made the piece, we started with uh, four acts and three themes that reoccur three times, and all the possible variations you can have of themes A, B, and C together. So simply it's act one, A and B, act two, C and A, act three, uh, B and C, and Act 4, all three themes together for the first time, A, B, and C. Um, actually, in some ways, uh, people t- looked at the work as being very radical, and in some ways it is radical, and even today, but this structure is a classical form, and it's theme and variation, so there's not really anything so new about that. And it was a time-space construction. So for the space, visually, I took the three traditional ways that painters have measured uh, space. 
If I see my hand here, I can say it's a portrait. If I see my hand here, I can say it's a still life. But if I go across the street, it's a part of a landscape. So the knee plays, the interlude scenes became portraits. They were the closest to the audience. And the train and trial scenes were still lifes for me, were uh, next closest to the audience. And the deepest space were the fields with the spaceship. And you have three of them. So the first you see a small spaceship, and the second one you see a bigger spaceship. And the third one, you're in the interior of the spaceship. Uh, so it was a visual architectural construction of images and, and time and space. And the curious thing is that when I first met Phil, I said, um, how do you write music? And he explained to me a, a, a structure. And I said, wow, that's the way I think too. And so I think that, <clears throat> as Phil said, the, the amazing thing is we had a common sense of time and uh, we rather quickly agreed on how long a scene should be. Um, it's a little bit like uh, <clears throat> we all, everyone in this room lives in a, a big apartment building. So the architect has designed the building and gives the form and the cohesion, the structure, in the building where we live. And this man can live in the building and he can have his apartment to be the way he wants, and this man can have the apartment the way he wants. And these two women can have the apartment the way they want. And we all live in this building and can fill in the form, but the architect is given the, the structure. And Phil and I worked on a, on a mega structure in which then we could be more free to ask Mr. Johnson to write a speech or Christopher Knowles to participate. Uh, but we started with the form, which was a classical structure. Now, Lucinda, you've lived in this building called Einstein on the Beach. You've performed it probably a hundred times all over the world, from Japan to South America, Europe, um, in New York, in North America, actually only in New York. So these performances here in Toronto are the first time Einstein on the Beach ever is going to be seen outside of New York City in North America, which is a triumph for us, but kind of also Bravo. a scandal. Um, and your, your role that you created with Bob is almost constantly on stage. So how, do you, how does one perform? How does it feel like? Do you, do you, what kind of relationship do you have with the audience? And um, how exhausted are you afterwards? Well, the last performances that I did actually was in 1992. It was almost 20 years ago. Um, you don't really think about time. You know, really thinking about... Uh, you just really you're carried by the music and carried by the whole concept of working in this very special aesthetic where the content is not in and of itself the only important thing. It's how you do what you do um, and the process that you go through. That you do, and it's, of course the stamina is an issue as well. And for me it was a, an enormous transition because as Philip said earlier, originally I was working with a very small group, no music at all, no decor, And to work with Bob, when we initially met, it wasn't really clear to me if he was wanting me to be involved as an actress or a dancer. And I found out very quickly it doesn't really matter. What, what he wants is a performance style of performance quality. And this is a performance art. 
and it was such a new experience for me to, to work in this way, to work in this collaborative fashion, sharing ideas, exchanging ideas constantly. So um, I think the actual performing of it was just the pleasure of having been through that process with yeah. both of them. To me, Einstein, I mean, it, it, it's such an important piece in, 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 in contemporary opera, and I always compare it, you know, try to compare it to, you know, really the great masterpieces of the 20th century. And I mean, in this building, we have a Picasso exhibition, and to me, this piece is really up there as, you know, an important piece. So it's, it's, it's quite a... Um, an honor to have to see this piece again. You and know I, what Picasso said? I was just thinking that. Did he see it? No. Oh no, he was he died before. But no? uh, Picasso said, uh, <clears throat> in talking about music, he said, uh, when you hear the birds singing, you don't ask what it means; you just listen to it, and uh, that's a little bit what Einstein uh, on the beach is for me. Is that I just listen to the music and look at the pictures, and um, if you are looking for, for meaning, uh, you'll, you'll get frustrated. You have to, it's something you experience, and uh, it's like uh, if you see a sunset, does it, it doesn't have to tell you something, or if you hear the birds chattering, it doesn't necessarily have to mean something. It's something we listen to and something we look at, and to experience something is, is a way of th- thinking. Do you think Susan Sontag used to say that to experience something is a way of thinking? Do you think it's it's from your experience now seeing audiences today and in '76 and '84 and '92 has has the audience changed? Is it easier for them to under to to experience it today because so much has happened since, or or has it just remained the same? I don't know, and, and <clears throat> I I think uh, as as far as I can see uh, what's happening in the opera and the theater, um, I just went to see two weeks ago a Broadway show. And uh, <clears throat> I started uh, looking at my watch, and it was never more than 10, 15, or 20 seconds at the longest that there was not a response from the public. So it's, they had to understand, do you understand, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand? And after a while, you don't understand anything. But, <laughs> but in this work, it's, it's really okay to, to get lost. I'll tell you a good story. <clears throat> in 1992, when we did the revival, uh, it was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And about a week after we had opened, I went back to see a performance. And I was standing in the back of the theater, and I saw an empty seat on the aisle, and I walked down the aisle and sat in the, the seat. And next to me was Arthur Miller. And he didn't know who I was, but I knew who he was. <laughs> so after about 20 minutes, he turned to me and said, um, what do you think about this? And I said, um, I don't know. What do you think about it? He said, you know, I don't get it. I said, you know, I don't get it either. <laughs> and about a half an hour he got up and left. <laughs> but it, it's something that 
if you try to get it, you'll, you'll, you'll get, it'll be frustrating. It's, it's something you just experience. And um, uh, I think in that way, it's still quite different from what we normally... It's not a narrative structure, and we're so used to going to the opera, to theater, to have a narrative and to being dictated how to react, like television or something. And this is something different. It may be more radical now than in 76, when there seemed to be more experimentation happening in the arts. Philip, you all three also took a very conscious decision of working with a whole new generation of, of, of performers. Um, is there, did you experience sort of a difference well, in training or approach of these yeah. people? In the first uh, performances and revivals, we all three were performing. This is the first time the, That's three right. us, the three of us didn't perform. How was it seeing your work for the first well, time actually, together? I, I saw it for the first time because I was always in the pit playing. <laughs> uh, I saw it for the first time in Ann Arbor in January. Uh, um, and I sat through the whole thing. <laughs> well, you didn't, you didn't take a bathroom break? You took a bathroom uh, yeah, break. I was there. Yeah, yeah I, took, I, I, I ran backstage and had a cup of coffee, too. Uh, but you know, I want to say something about the, the, the way audiences might experience it. I mean, it's not, yeah. Bob has done a lot of work since then, and so have I, and so has Lucinda. There's, uh, uh, Einstein has a special quality to it. It reminds me of the words of Christopher... Uh, Knowles in him, he talks about it's very, very fresh and clean. It's something about Einstein's like that. And it, it's not like other pieces of mine. It's not like other pieces of any of us, really. It, there's a special... Yeah. Now, the thing is that when people... I think when people come to it, it basically is a piece that doesn't have any companions in the theater. It's a sui genre. It's something that exists by itself. So anyone who comes to see it it's like Mr. Miller. You're on your own. You can't relate it to uh, Death of a Salesman or you can't relate it to a work of Genet or a piece of Beckett. It doesn't make any sense. to. It's not like Waiting for Godot and it's not like uh, anything. Uh, so for anyone who sees it, you have the unique opportunity of seeing something that's not... that you can't enter it. You, you have no other door to enter it by, except by simply letting it come to you. Yeah. And that, that, that's the fresh and clean part of it. Uh, that, and you feel that, has, that is still the same today? I, I'm sure it is. Uh, I was very curious about that. Uh, people who never saw it, many people come to see it who had wanted to see it, and that may be true in Toronto, where, or, you know, the, especially the young people, but even the older people who haven't seen it. And uh, I'm sure I know that, that uh, it's not that different from the first night in uh, Avignon mm. when we did the piece. And no one had ever seen the piece. The audiences who see it now are seeing it pretty much the same way. They're seeing something that they hadn't seen before. You know, th I don't know whether uh, we're, people will see this in the future or whether it will be even... Any of us will be considered important artists in the future. I have no idea. Uh, uh, well, you've but made did, it quite a way. So. Well, no. I, no, I really don't know. And I don't even try to know. But uh, one thing that we did was we... I, I don't know how we did it, but 
It was part of the time and part of when we met and who we were at that moment. A lot of funny things, autobiographical things, things that we've never even talked about. But we managed to do a piece which is very fresh. And yeah. it still is. And, and I don't... I mean, we never did The Son of Einstein or The Return of Einstein. We never did that. <laughs> and, and Einstein that on the and grass? That, that, that disappointed some people very much. They were very, people were very angry at me when they heard Satyagraha. And when they saw dance, they were really angry. <laughs> and I, I know that people, Bob, you've had your ups and downs while this is too, but people, uh, I don't know if they thought they were going to see it again, but this, it, is a, it's, it has a uniqueness to it. So uh, I, I think that we don't, Bob's advice that you picked up from, did you say Picasso? Yeah. That's, the best, that's the best way. Lucinda, how was it for you to see Einstein for the first time? Because you've been on stage since... The beginning. That's true. It's the first time seeing it. No, it's it's amazing, and um, the time goes by very quickly, night after night. I really, I really love being there, and also the group that I have now is a group that I've worked with for three years. So that was very important to me to come to this production with the experience of of having worked with the dancers to revive the the field dancer, the two field dancers, and also the soloist for the opening scene and train the solo that I did it's, it's very important to me do you sometimes see yourself and you're like oh I, should have, I could have done this better or you know oh wow what did she do there is it no, does, the, does the piece change with the uh, no, with it's, the performance we're performers? moving on and we're passing things on to another generation and it's exciting to be part of that and it's very interesting also to see how they connect with Bob I think that's the most important thing that they You know, he doesn't tell them exactly what to do, but somehow he finds a way to help them find a way. And it's a very, it's sort of a fascinating process, and it's very subtle yeah. to see that happening. And it's really, at a, I think, at a stage now where every single performer on that stage has communicated with Bob in a very special way, and that's giving the performance element that you really need. Now, let's, let's go back maybe a little bit to the title. We've talked about everything but Einstein, really, or Einstein on the beach. I, I, I think, Bob, you told me um, a while ago, or, or say that, that there's a photograph, basically, that you have of Einstein from which a lot of the ideas for the piece sort of start. Can you tell us a little bit of, about that and how this sort of little seed turns into um, such a complex um, tree? Well, I was interested in, at that time, and still am, of uh, making works about uh, gods of our time, the way, say, the Greeks made plays of gods of their time with Apollo or Athena or whatever. Uh, so Einstein was a sort of god of the 20th century. Uh, I made a work on Freud, a work on Stalin. These are people that are commonly known by the general public. So we come to the theater sharing a, a certain common knowledge. Um, and Einstein, as uh, Phil pointed out, was also uh, uh, the father of, um, of the atomic bomb. And the so there's all, he was a pacifist, but there's also this dark side. And I had <clears throat> read and thought about uh, On the Beach, the novel. So I thought that maybe Einstein on the beach, to have that 
Association. Um, the photograph? Oh, the photograph. And a friend of mine, Paul Walter, uh, gave me a, a photograph of uh, Einstein uh, at Princeton. And he's standing with gray baggy pants and suspenders and a starched white shirt, uh, short sleeve shirt, and uh, a wristwatch. And he's holding his hands uh, to his side, and there's this little space that's between his fingers. And I started looking at that gesture and then looking at other photographs of Einstein, and I found a photograph when he was two years old, and he's standing pretty much the same way with that little space between these two fingers. And when he was 12 years old, and 22, and 32, and 52, and it was curious how this gesture was always there. And then I started thinking about, well, it was in this space that he held the chalk that he made his calculations. His favorite pastime was sailing, and it was in this space that he pulled the ropes of the sailboat. He also liked to play the violin, and it was in that space that he held the bow for the violin. And uh, so I started with that, that gesture. And everyone is dressed in gray pants and suspenders and short sleeve shirts. Uh, and they have a wristwatch. And he was wearing tennis shoes. So everyone is wearing tennis shoes. Um, and that was uh, the seed of the work. How did sort of other theories of Einstein, I know it's obviously not a biographical opera, it doesn't have a story. Um, how did other sort of ideas of Einstein define well, just, the structure and find their way into the piece? I took various images that he used. Uh, he talks about trains. So Einstein said, if you see a train going across a field, you see that. But if you see it from this perspective, you see a line. So you have in the first scene a train that's going across the stage and it's interrupted by a vertical line of light and the train goes off and the line of light goes away and the train comes back the second time and the second time again it's uh, interrupted by a vertical line of light and they go off and it happens a third time. Um, he talks about time and space and Time being a vertical line. Something goes to the center of the earth and goes to the heavens, and space is a horizontal line. And in the second scene of the trial, we start with a horizontal window of light. So it's a cross of time and space. And so it's, there are various images that you can freely associate with that uh, were not necessarily arbitrarily chosen, but always thought about in relationship to Einstein and, and who he was, uh, how he stood, how he dressed, uh, his ideas. And I once was with Phil and he was showing me, uh, uh, he had written the, the music uh, on a piece of paper and I said, wow, I, look, this is a, a page from Einstein's notebook of his calculations. And there seemed to be the similarity in, in terms of the configuration of numbers. Um, so the, it's something that you can freely associate with and look at. And Philip, did it you has no one way to think about it. You can think about it in, in any way, multiple ways. Philip, did you do 
while composing or before composing, did you do any research into oh, I Einstein's knew a lot about thoughts? Einstein. And, uh, I was uh, a little older than Bob, so in 1947, right after the war, I was 10 years old. Uh, and uh, right after the war, Einstein became very, very famous uh, because the theory of relativity and so forth, uh, it was his theories that had made it possible to win that war. That's how it was looked at. So he was... He was, a, he was a super, super, duper, super star. Everyone knew what he looked like in the picture of him with his tongue out. Everybody knew that picture. Uh, the, Which is in the opera, too. What, it's in the opera, too. And there are pictures Good of moment. him and a boy in the opera. There are all kinds of things. The, the opera is packed with Einstein memorabilia, uh, including, of course, the most important for me, of course, as a musician, he played the violin. So the violin becomes a touchstone for another thing about Einstein. The other thing that was happening at that time, in my 10, 11, and 12, uh, there were uh, uh, discussions and popular uh, explanations about the theory. Everybody wanted to know about this theory, which uh, we were told only six people in the world understood, of course. That was a great underestimation of what it really was. But that was a popular idea that, that only six people understood the theory and that he couldn't even... Uh, they also said that... He couldn't uh, even uh, uh, count up uh, his grocery bill. You know, that was another. He didn't all these remember kind of, his telephone number. He well, said, I kind of, yeah, "I have too many other numbers funny things in my on head." My side. But, but uh, yeah, so that, but so uh, you my put it childhood into the opera. was my childhood was filled with uh, stories of Einstein. So when we were talking about the piece years and years later, and Bob, we probably got Einstein. I said, "Oh my, oh, I'm there with that," <laughs> and I knew I knew a lot about it in a way. Now. Then the other, which I forgot about that, but the 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 music, the text of the of the singing is often numbers, so that's part of it. But actually, what had happened really, I was teaching the the music to the singers, and the, who were also, we had the dance company and the singing company were the same. We had uh, we had to audition people who could sing and dance. If you might remember that, because and there were plenty of people that can do that because. A lot of people come to New York to become, they want to do song and dance on Broadway, so they have that training, and we auditioned them, and they were, but I still had to teach them the music, and I was teaching them uh, the rhythm of the music, which was the kinds of cyclical rhythm structures I was using, and I was using numbers to teach it, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, you just run through all, you'll hear these numbers all the way through. And then for the Melodies, I use the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do, which everybody knows. And uh, we had three rehearsals a day during this period. The morning rehearsal was a music rehearsal, then we had a dance rehearsal, then we had a staging rehearsal. And each rehearsal was about three hours long, and that's what we did. We did a, how long did we do that, Bob? Two or three months? It was, the, the yeah. whole piece was made. That was, and then one morning, Bob came in to hear the music rehearsal, and we were doing the one, two, three, and... The, and the soul first things. And Bob said to me, is that the text of their singing? And I said, yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's nice. I, I think I was doing it just as a teaching device. I didn't really know what I was going to do after that. And Bob said, is that what they're going to sing? And I said, well, yes, that's it. So Bob, it was a combination of, 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 of my clumsiness and his naivete uh, uh, allowed us to make this wonderful decision 
were that if you listen to the numbers, that will tell you the structure of the music. Yeah. And if you listen to the solfege, it tells you the structure of the melody. And it's completely... It's, it, and Bob, you're right. It's, it's like looking at one of his, his drawings where you see numbers in it. So in a way, I can say, we don't know what Einstein is about, but Einstein on the beach, every road leads back to Einstein. Everything you see, everything that the people are wearing, uh, uh, even the ordinary, everyday things of Christopher Knowles and the poetry of Lucinda and Mr. Johnson, to me it sounds like Einstein. Maybe it's I've just been... <laughs> Lucinda, <laughs> there's two big dance scenes in the piece called the Field Dances, and... Um, you choreographed them in 1984, and that's sort of regarded as really the definitive version of, of Einstein now. Was, I sort of have my theory about what that could be, and it's actually, um, I, really, I'm, I'm, I assume everyone who's here is coming to see Einstein, right? You all have tickets already? You, well, then you have to see it again. <laughs> there you go. Great. See, this is... This is, this is how you should talk in 10 years. You've seen it, but you want to see it again. And the one big advice I want to give everyone is don't leave for a longer time after the first trial scene. And the first trial scene is maybe a little trial uh, or trying. It's a very long scene. It's a rather slow scene. I mean, Robert Wilson's theater is rather slow. Um, and it's, it's not the most... It's, it's, it's a beautiful and wonderful scene. But a lot of people rush out after that scene, and the knee play is not that long that comes after it. And it does make sense that you leave during the knee plays if you have to leave. I have never left the two performances I was in. But then come back as fast as you can, because if you don't, you're going to miss Lucinda, the, the first field dance, which is absolutely divine. It's probably really one of the most one of the greatest moments of theatrical beauty I've ever seen in my life. Combined with Philip music, Bob's sets and lighting, but especially sort of the movement, Lucinda's movement. Can you talk a little bit about how you create movement, how you come up with the patterns, how your working process is? Well, uh, way back in 1976, uh, Philip was, was not only the first composer that I worked with, but the first time working with a composer. You know, <laughs> sort of. um, and we actually discussed at a certain point in time that if the aesthetics are similar, we work in a similar way, what is the point of, of putting these structures together? Do I want to illustrate the music? Do I want to contradict the music? Do I want to not pay any attention to the music? None of those things really made sense to me. And I was lucky in a way to begin just as a soloist, just working on the first solo, which is in the train, the opening scene of the train scene, on the three diagonals that Bob wanted to use to illustrate the progression of the train. Uh, I tried to think about creating a, a dialogue and trying to create some kind of tension, a coexistence with the choreography and the music. And that's very much what has played out in the field dances when they were created. And also Bob's concept of uh, that the opera consists of the portraits, the landscapes, and the still lives. And these are the two landscapes, and they have to be open and fill the space and fill the musical space as well. To me, it's almost, I mean... Let me give you my interpretation of it. You can contradict it, of course. It almost, I mean, it has an incredible energy and lightness and beauty. And it's, it's almost, to me, it, it, it seems like 
a metaphor for the movement of atoms or for the movement of elementary particles that are sort of orbiting around um, space and creating the space. It has, to me, it has that kind of... I, I was thinking of that when I saw it for the first time. Well, that's nice. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not condemned for my opinion, for sure. No, we actually don't, you know, use any specific ideas to get those results and actually it's a compliment to the dancers. Well, that's the, I think, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about, you know, this opera and, and, and as Bob said, you know, you, you don't, you try not to understand it, but you have to experience it, but the audience is, 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 is being entitled to have their own experiences and maybe also create their own meaning. Sure. And um, it's not something where the stage tells you what to think, like in the Broadway theater, but where you're free to think and associate. Bob? Is that no, well it, said? It, as I said, it's a time-space construction. If you have this long um, scene of the trial where it's very static, uh, and then suddenly you have a scene that's very people are moving very quickly and freely in the space, one thing supports another. So if I pull this napkin away from this glass and the table supports it, one thing is supports another. And it, so it's a time-space consideration. Uh, it is for me. that I mean, there's one scene in the fourth act, uh, it's... Uh, 17 minutes long or something and it's just a bar of light it's the only thing on stage that starts horizontally and, and suddenly goes vertically and then flies away I think if we did that in the beginning of the opera or in the first act probably everyone would leave but it's after you've been sitting there for four hours and then this thing happens somehow at that moment it seems right and then that's it's up the, the next scene, which is, uh, again, very quick movement of light and, and space and changing very, very rapidly. Uh, so it's, it's how one thing can support another in a time and space construction, and those are the considerations. And, uh, uh. The piece has been performed all over the world, and um, was there ever a country where you thought like or a city like they didn't get it or or what kind of experiences did you have with the with the audiences or what was sort of the I mean apart from Arthur Miller of course what was sort of the crassest uh, experience with the with the audience was it ever disturbed did people ever get up and sort of try to interrupt the performance because they couldn't stand it or no because I think that they know that the have the freedom to get up and leave if they want, so that uh, they don't have to sit there. They can come and go. And uh, my sister, she's from Texas, <laughs> and she said, "I don't know how you get away with all that." <laughs> Any questions from the audience? Back there.
Did everyone understand that? The okay. Good voice. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I, it's something for me I, I still uh, continue to think about because it, 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 <clears throat> it was always asking questions. And it wasn't saying what something was, but just saying, what is this? And I think that's the reason we work as artists, is to say, what is it? And that's the reason to work. And I think that <clears throat> that's what fascinates me about the work, is that I can still go back and it's still open-ended. And, and I do see things that <clears throat> were a part of my life at that time, and it's a, a part of the times, and... Uh, but. Uh, I think that the bones, the structure, are solid. It's a classical structure. And classical forms are, are what last, whether it's in architecture or music or, or whatever, and painting. And, uh, so the, the form is a, is a classical structure. And uh, so in a sense, it's, it's timeless. Uh, Did the three of or, you... Not, not timeless. I should, it's full of time. It's not timeless, but full of time. Did the three of you, when, when, even before it came out, let's say after the dress rehearsal or the final week sort of before, did, the, did you realize that this was an important work and a masterpiece? The, uh, you, you mean in 1976? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember very clearly that nervous. night. Uh, the f uh, the f that was the opening night. We had never succeeded in playing the piece straight through until then. <laughs> we didn't actually know how long it was. Uh, okay, uh, I thought you set the time from the very beginning. That's that's right, and the, the remarkable thing is how close it was to that. Oh, uh, and well, you and want to tell a, me you weren't on and, the exact time? The, not only that, but from performance to performance, because the stage manager always does the timing. Uh, uh, from performance to performance, over a period of four and a half hours, there's rarely a difference of more than one or two minutes, which may have more to do with the size of the stage than anything else. But. Uh, 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 I think we were uh, so intensely, uh, in, in a way, we, we were working together so closely and so uh, struggling, really, to get the piece together. Because don't forget the whole performance style of the piece didn't exist yet. We were, it was a performance style that was coming into being, not only for the dancers, but for the musicians and for, uh, for the performers as well. Uh, so that, that we, we scarcely had any idea, I, my personal feeling, what, what the hell it was. And we got through that first night without a breakdown or stopping or anything. We, we've always been able to do that. Uh, oh, what was the applause? Well, when we got through, I remember we went to dinner afterwards with uh, Michelle Guy and Alice Tully. Remember that, Bob? Alice Tully didn't like it at all. <laughs> uh, Michel Guy loved it a lot. He became the. Well, that's leader. good. He gave the money. So. He gave it. He was the minister of. He was at that point the minister of culture, for uh, for France, and by the way, he 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 presented it as a gift uh, uh, to the uh, to uh, the United States for the bice uh, bicentennial celebration, in 1976, and uh, he uh, told us that it was a gift, and we uh, there was a committee at the time, commissioning things. So Bob and I wrote to the committee and said that we let them know that the French government had, as they had with the Statue of Liberty, 
uh, made this gift to the American people. I sat on the beach. We didn't get a reply, but they did send... <laughs> they sent us a flag. <laughs> Bob, Bob, do you have that flag? <laughs> I don't have it either. I don't know who got it. That's Someone got the flag. That poor flag. Other questions? Actually, I have a question that would relate more to the title of the talk and the idea of Einstein as something that begins a larger movement. You know, you've titled the panel the Contemporary Opera's Big Bang, and you've talked a little bit about how this piece, 30 years later, remains um, experimental and, and out of the ordinary and surprising. And I'm wondering whether you look around and, and wonder about that. Why, why was it not more of the... A beginning of something more? Why do we not see more work that is challenging and experimental in this way? Why, why is work that you see around you not as challenging as it yeah. was in the 70s? Uh, I, I, can I speak for, for myself? And I think for my colleagues, because I know their work very well, that continues to happen throughout my whole life and through their lives too. Uh, it's not, there's something maybe indigestible about this work. It doesn't get assimilated very easily, I don't think. And uh, it's been, uh, my own way of working has continued, and, and it also doesn't... In some ways, it's become very popularized in terms of popular music, but in another way, the, the essential... Uh, out, let's say the outlook of the piece, the strategies of the piece, the way we think about it, uh, said so that it just doesn't work that way. And I've seen that in Bob's work. I've gone to see productions of his of, of uh, Debussy and uh, all, all the... He's done the classic operas, too. When he does them, they don't look like the classic operas anymore. They look like something else. And some people love it, and some people can't stand it. I mean, you know, that's just the way it is. And with Lucinda's work, uh, well, I want to tell you about... We did Dance in 79... And uh, it's been received as a great piece today, but at that time, people, I think we had I, a lot of trouble with that with the audiences. I think sort of a part of the question is also: it, did did were other artists inspired by this work, and did it sort of create a movement? Let's say, like I, I would say, you know, evident, evidently not. <laughs> not only you. I mean. There aren't, there aren't people doing Bob Wilson pieces. You have to go look at a Bob Wilson piece. No, of course, but there was, you know, there was Picasso who started to, you know, sort of paint in a Cubist style, and then you had, you know, you had a whole, you know, Brock, or you have Arnold Schoenberg doing twelve-tone composition, and then you have a whole, you know, slew of decades of um, other composers, sort well, of. You're answering the question yourself. <laughs> I guess. Any. Well, I, I can speak about one element that is uh, very different, and that is the light. Um, see, light in this opera was not something done uh, two weeks before we opened. It was the bar of light was drawn in the beginning. It's a part of the book. It's a part of the structure. It's, it's architectural. It's not something <clears throat> done as an afterthought. Um, 
light is the most important element in theater. It's the element that helps us to hear and to see. It's the most important element in architecture uh, <clears throat> and everything, to start with light. But saying that being said, <clears throat> the light has changed. Uh, when we did it originally, the, all the lights were incandescent lights. And uh, today they're less and less incandescent lights. In fact, uh, in many of the theaters where I work in Europe, it's no longer legally allowed. So we use halogen lights and HMI lights, and that's a cold light. And when you dim them, they're still cold. They're not warm. Uh, so that's a big, big change in terms of the light in the space. Um, is that the instruments are different today. They're much stronger, they're colder, uh, so it's a different palette of color in, in terms of light. And um, I mean, there are other things. Essentially, though, it's pretty much what I did originally. I adapted, as Lucinda said, to the personality of the performer. So if you have... Uh, this man who's going to be in the piece, uh, you know, his body is a certain weight, his look is a, a certain nature, so you make it for him and uh, instead of imposing. So often we, when I was younger, I used to think if I went to the theater and I didn't have, I wasn't prepared and I didn't have ideas in my head, I wouldn't know what to do. And I realized as I got older that I wasted time often by preparing. Instead of just walking into the room and saying, wow, this lady looks like that, and this woman looks like that, and how different they are. And that's a starting point. And let the piece talk to you instead of you talking to it. And um, so in that way it changes because of the personalities on, on stage. Lucinda, I think you did change a little bit of the choreography, or quite a bit of the choreography, no? Yes, that's true. The second field dancers adapted more to the uh, current group of dancers that I have now in my company. And also it's so different because I'm not performing, I'm outside of it, and it was really an opportunity to uh, explore the possibility for, the, for this revival. What made you choose those, those changes? Well, the material is the same. The, the physical material is the same. It's how it's put together. It's a little bit, I think, more complex than the original version because this is a, a group that has more capability. Mm -hmm. It's a you know, wonderful group that I have now. Well, the, I wanted to say about the... There, there was a very important change in the music, uh, very simply that uh, when there's a new musical language, there'll be a new performance practice to go with it. If you think about it, it really can't be any other way. If an idea is new, then there has to be a new way of playing. And it took a, a long time to... When we began Einstein, we didn't really know how to play it yet. But we play it much better now. Because there is a performance practice where we actually know what it is. So it uh, did cause something. It did. And, and what happens now is that the ensemble can play a four-and-a-half-hour show. And we, we aren't particularly tired afterwards. That's part of it. Well, you're not performing in it anymore, well, I, Phil. But I, 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 I am, actually. We've done some concert versions as well. And we do music in 12 parts, which is also four hours. So what's happened is that uh, 
there's a way of playing this music, and I find that with the violinists, and they start to play, they come to us, and they haven't played this music before. And uh, they can be wonderfully trained in one way, and they have to relearn, they have to learn to play in a different way with this music. So there is a performance practice, and I think that's, I would say there's a, that performance practice extends to the actors and the dancers as well. Say and, maybe two sentences about the violinist who's playing here, because I think that's very special, or she's very special. We think so, too. I mean, that's why we, we go through these... It's all, actually all a female, process. so yeah. a woman plays Einstein. You know... She, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, the, the, the thing is that all, she has a wig, and she's dressed like Einstein, and after a few minutes, she looks like Einstein, you know. She's just supposed to be Einstein, and so that's what she is. But uh, she is a, uh, she's a uh, wonderful player who is very well known for a classical concertos and doing all kinds of things. I, I was even a little surprised that she wanted to audition. Why would a person who can do the classics like that? But she did, and uh, it's been. Uh, she had the tr the technical training she had, but uh, and and I. Uh, it's been very uh, interesting to watch this, how this music has settled into her now, and we have a second player too, because they, you know, and that. Yeah. Uh, but that's always true for this. Uh, uh, there's been a big learning curve that has affected a lot of other things that I've done that happened through... It, it's because there's a dance language, there's a visual language, there's a movement language, there's an image language, there's a musical language. These are languages as clear as the languages that we speak to each other. More clear, in fact, because the, uh, we have more control over these the, the languages of the arts are more precise, to yeah. be frank. Her name is Jennifer Koch. She's really a fantastic, fantastic soloist, and she has performed also already here in Toronto with the TSO, so she's not a, a total newcomer. More, I saw a question over there. You mentioned that um, Einstein on the Beach hasn't been performed in North America outside of New York City, and this is the first time that this is happening. I was wondering if the panelists could speak to why it hasn't been performed outside of New York in the past. Ask the producer. Yeah. Why it hasn't been performed outside of New York in North America. You bring up a very interesting point. The producer, uh, the Pomegranate Arts, and that's Linda, uh, Linda Brombach and, and uh, Lisa Regis, her, uh, her right-hand person on this. It took them 10 years to put this together. Uh, the only way... See, we're not an opera house, actually. We're not even... In, we're not even... When if this piece is over, everything, all the parts disappear. We don't have a structure of, of an opera house, so we didn't know the kind of structure, and they've invented a structure, which is finding producers in different places. I think there are seven or eight, maybe we're getting more now. Uh, and it's been in, in, in France and... Uh, and uh, in Italy, and in Holland, and in, in Canada, in North America, in Hong Kong, in Mexico. Uh, each one of those uh, is a very interesting puzzle. Unfortunately, uh, they're experts at this. They know how to do it. It, it takes a real tenacity, and, 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 and there are people who say they're going to do it, they're going to do it, and the last minute they say they're not going to do it. That happens all the time. And suddenly, the person, the most important part of the puzzle has disappeared, and you have to put the whole puzzle back together. I've been watching. That we hope we had meant to have this ready, 
by, two th by 2005, for the 100th anniversary of the special theory of special rel relativity, we missed by seven years. Well, that's uh, but, but we didn't really miss. Very relative. It took, it took, it took that long. Uh, basically, you have to make an ersatz opera company which is prepared to disappear at the end of the, of the productions. It's a both uh, a painful way. And, and, you know, there's another thing about this piece. This is really not a traveling piece. We come to a city like this. And the, the production people come three or four days before we do. It takes three days to load in. We have to... I mean, to do three nights here, we've had to work probably four days in Toronto to be able to do three nights. So uh, it's not even a... Tr it's, it's really not meant to travel, but the only way it can be financed is by traveling. And so you get into these... So uh, the, the producing team, without, they've not only been essential, there's not a ghost of... This thing never could have happened without that kind of... There's a kind of creative imagination just in the organization of it. It runs straight through the piece, and without that, we wouldn't be here. I think it maybe is also, you know, that theater audiences in, in uh, the U.S. are developing fairly slowly. And, I mean, the fact that, you know, and, and, and the, the fact that they have caught up now to this piece and want this piece, and actually Linda Brumbach, the producer, told me that Berkeley... Um, um, all the performances are already sold out, and that's actually in, in October. Uh, they've sold 6,000 tickets already in that, you know, fairly small place. So, so maybe, it, maybe it really took 36 years for the piece to, to grow one and fully, Bob, and for the, for the audiences to also fully that, that experience it. We learned uh, Bob very painfully, and my also with being by his side, as it were, operas lose money. That's why opera companies are raising money. So you can sell out all these shows, and you still not, don't have enough money to do it. This opera is not any different from anything of Verdi's. It lose, uh, operas cost more to produce than, than you can earn in the box no, office. No, absolutely. But so I would say you're, every you're, production you're at the Met is the, probably twice as expensive as, as Einstein on the Beach what's was. That? Every production at the Met is probably twice as expensive as Einstein on the Beach was. Don't tell us that. And only half as good. <laughs> only half as good. Thank you. Well, thank you for your... Back there. Wow. Welcome. generation of performers and it was I think something that thank you very much <laughs> we'll send you a recording of her speaking but I hope you also miss Robert Wilson who's a Texan as well and who hasn't performed or who hasn't performed in Texas for a long 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 time even though I don't know if you know that Texas has an official Robert Wilson day you didn't know that it's sort of a it's not a you know, I think if only if you're an artist, you get a day off, but um, there aren't that many. Other questions? It might seem like a very uh, collaborative rehearsal process, thanks. Um, this is mainly for Bob. Um, and what seems to be a very collaborative rehearsal process with the performers, I'm wondering how you balance your artistic vision 
versus the ideas that the performers may bring to the table? And do you ever encounter any resistance versus your, against your uh, very specific performance style? Well, <clears throat> on one hand, my work is uh, very precise. And on the other hand, it's uh, very uh, liberating. I, in 40-something years of working in the theater, I have never told an actor or performer what to think whether I'm doing uh, The Ring of Wagner, which I did, or uh, King Lear, which I did, or whatever. Um, but I give very formal directions. Maybe it could be more interior, more exterior, should be slower, should be quicker, uh, should be bigger, should be smaller. Uh, the space in back of you is more important than the space in front of you. Feel this space in back of it. That will make more tension with the public. So they're formal directions. And then the performer can fill in the, the form. And sort of to answer your question, has the piece changed? Um, yes, it changes because <clears throat> of the way the performers feel in the form. I cannot feel what this man feels, ever. And he can't feel what I can feel. And if I try to dictate to him in this moment what he feels, it'll be false. So he's given a, a form, and uh, the way he fills it in is up to him. And how he feels in the form is up to him. And that's what the form is not important. The form is boring. It's how you fill in the form, it's how you feel in the form. You can see. A hundred women dancing, Giselle, why is one the most beautiful? They're all doing the same steps. It's how she feels in that form that makes the difference. So I give a form, and then <clears throat> it's up to the individual and how they fill it in. And that is what's most important. I think that was a beautiful final word and I think so many images um, I guess are in your minds um, in anticipation of Einstein we sort of deliberately didn't show any excerpts because because I think it's 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 better to as Bob says and as everyone says to experience the work um, and uh, thank you everyone so much for coming I hope we'll see you on Friday Saturday or Sunday at the Sony Center thank you Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.